Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Lou. Hi. Hello, divers. Yes, we are back after a very long absence and we're both very sorry. We are. <laughs> do apologise. Life just got in the way. Yeah. But it is lovely to be sitting here with you, Lou, recording our conversation. I was very excited to come here this morning and, and get back into it. Me too. And Missed today it. we're going to have a conversation about Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. Uh, as one of our book club episodes, and specifically the first part of the book. And we'll be back to discuss part two soon. They were written quite separately, mm. part one and part two. They could almost be published mm. as two separate books, and I often wonder. I didn't know they were written separately. Yeah, one mm. was 1605 and one was 1616. Oh, okay, that's and a long And when you read the break. second part, you'll yes. you, you'll start to yes. see what how that all came about, but it all makes it all very interesting. So I'll just tell you a little bit about Miguel de Cervantes because he was fascinating to the extent that we know and we don't know a great deal about him because he lived from 1547 to 1616, which is a very long time ago, and records were not what they are, you know, what they were even 200 years later. So he was 69 when he died Mm. and he possibly died on the same day as Shakespeare. Yes. Yes. Although... It's a little bit unclear whether that's true or not because England was still using the Julian calendar uh, okay. and in 1616 and Spain had already started using the Gregorian calendar. Wow. Yes, so there's differences there okay. that need to be figured mm, out. I did not know that either. Fascinating. Mm. And just to set things in context, which I always like to do, I just thought I'd run through a few things that were happening during Cervantes' lifetime. Mm. So in 1558, Queen Elizabeth I took the throne. In 1564, Shakespeare was born. Mm. In 1577, Sir Francis Drake sails around the world. Mm. So that's where we're up to sort of in terms of our understanding Mm. of the whole world. In 1592, Shakespeare's first plays Mm. were performed. And then in 1605, part one of Don Quixote was published in Spanish, not in English. Not in English. It's funny, isn't it, how many times people put Shakespeare next to Cervantes. Yeah, uh, you, but you, when you read him, you can see why. Yes, I thought yeah. about him all the time. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I even looked up to see whether they were aware of each, of each other. other. And it mm. would appear that possibly Shakespeare was aware of Cervantes, mm. but not the other way not around. Not the other way around. That's what I thought as well. Because there is apparently a play that Shakespeare wrote uh, called Cardenio, which is one of yeah. the characters. It that, is one of the characters, yeah. And that's been lost, mm. so people don't know for sure. But it, it is fascinating. And is there a Lothario in one of Shakespeare's? I don't know. I, yeah, I, I not sure. have to look that mm. up. So in 1609, Galileo Galilei mm. demonstrated his first astronomical telescope. So we're really at that point where we still think the world's flat. Flat, yes. And a religion is mm. the dominant thing. 
The King James Bible was published in 1611 and then in 1616, the year that Miguel died, mm. Nicholas Copernicus's De Revolutionibus was placed on the index of forbidden books by the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. So the church was saying, we are not having any of this science. Wow. And the world is as, you know, it was yeah. created as the Bible says and all that sort of thing. So fascinating, mm. fascinating times. Uh, most of de Cervantes' life was spent in poverty and in obscurity and he, I, I think he probably would not have had an inkling of the enduring fame he was to mm. earn with Don Quixote, which is sort of a shame, yeah. isn't it? In his 20s, he was forced to leave Spain after being convicted of an assault and he went to Rome and he worked for Cardinal and then he joined the Spanish Navy and he was wounded in the most famous and extraordinary battle of Lepanto. Uh, it was a massive naval battle and he lost the use of his left hand. Mm. I think there were 800 boats on the sea and it, it, it's the biggest battle that there's has ever been. Mm. And he was captured by pirates and after five years he was eventually ransomed and freed and returned to Madrid. So he's been a slave. He's, you know. Would have had to endure. Yeah, he's. Terrible, terrible. Had an incredible life. Yeah. And then he worked as a purchasing agent and then as a government tax collector. Mm -hmm. And then he started writing and he wrote quite a few novels, novellas, long poems and sonnets. And was clearly right-handed. Clearly must have all become, um, yeah, presumably. (laughs) (laughs) And so today he is regarded as the greatest writer of the Spanish language Mm. and Don Quixote is believed to be the first modern novel. And he published part one in 1605 in Spanish and it was regarded as a complete book at that time. Mm. No one had any concept that there was going to be any more. But then his audience all wanted there to be Mm. more because they loved it so Mm. much. It was very popular. And then he wrote part two and published that in 1615, just before his death. Part one wasn't translated into English until 1612 and then part two, 1620, after his death. It's been regarded very differently over the 400 years of its life. It's sort of came out as being seen as um, at one point as a comedy and then as a tragedy and it's sort of been everything in between. It's been analysed by (laughs) all sorts of people and it's often referred to in psychiatry and all sorts of things. So there's a lot there. Mm. (laughs) So uh, were you going to talk to us a little bit about Don Quixote? Yes, I was. I was. At the beginning, I'm going to start right at the beginning of the book and just sort of do a little bit of a pricey on the beginning. And so Cervantes introduces us to a Alonso Quijada, and he's a, a noble gentleman, but he's a Hidalgo, which is the lowest of Imperial Spain's nobility. And he's approximately 50, and he lives in the La Mancha region of Spain, and that's the central area in Spain to the east of Madrid. And he lives with his niece, Antonia, and his two and their two servants. And he has some friends, a priest and a barber, and they, they feature in the, in the novel. But simply put, Alonso has become sort of devoted in the strictest sense of the word to the point of an obsessional fervour to stories <laughs> that chronicle the adventures, deeds and chivalry of great knights. And he has forgotten all else, his surroundings, his finances, his estate, And he completely loses his mind to the ideal of the knights errant. And knights errant are wandering knights. They're not attached in service to a particular king or lord. They set out in the world in pursuit of adventure and and chivalrous deeds. And 
the Knights of the Round Table were errant knights. Okay. Ah. And it's essentially where the word freelance comes from. Oh. Because they, they're, they're a lance to hire, a freelance. Well, I didn't know that. No, I, I, I didn't until I read this either. Oh, wow. Uh, and did a little bit of snooping. Cervantes informs us that Quijada is particularly taken with the stories of one writer, Feliciano de Silva. Satirically, he says, because of the clarity of his prose and the complexity of the language, which seemed to Quijada more valuable than pearls. But Quijada goes really crazy, spending sleepless nights trying to understand De Silva's words, such that it completely disorders his imagination and his mind. And I'm just going to read a little bit because I, I always think that nobody can do better than the writer mm. themselves. So true. <laughs> There's no point me paraphrasing. In short, our gentleman became so caught up in reading that he spent his nights reading from dusk till dawn and his days reading from sunrise to sunset. And so with too little sleep and too much reading, his brains dried up, causing him to lose his mind. His fantasy filled with everything he had read in his books, enchantments as well as combats, battles, challenges, wounds, courtings, loves, torments and other impossible foolishness. And he became so convinced in his imagination of the truth of, of all the countless grandiloquent and false inventions he read for him that no history in the world was truer. And then he says, The truth is that when his mind was completely gone, he had the strangest thought that any lunatic in the world ever had, <laughs> which was that it seemed reasonable and necessary to him, both for the sake of his honour and as a service to the nation. <laughs> to become a knight-errant and travel the world with his armour and horse, to seek adventures and engage in everything he had read that knights-errant engaged in, righting all manner of wrongs and by seizing the opportunity and placing himself in danger, ending those wrongs, winning eternal renown and everlasting fame. Oh, it's I love sort of, that. It's very that, lofty, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly what he does. The only clarity that Kiara has in his madness is that he must return to the past era and imitate these deeds and demeanour of these knights. So he makes his preparations as all worthy knights do. He needs armour. So he finds a rusty and mouldy <laughs> suit of armour in his garret and he fashions a new visor for the helmet out of cardboard. <laughs> and a lot of the images we have of Coyote are with this bizarre, <laughs> almost for us, Ned Kelly-esque <laughs> kind of headpiece on his head, isn't it, really? I mean, cardboard. I know. I know. I know. Bless it's him. Just, it's just the folly of it. It's, he also, of course, needs a steed. All knights <laughs> need a steed. And he takes four days to rename his old horse. And it's a name he thinks that must reflect the steed of a renowned knight. But he calls him Rocinante, which means former nag. <laughs> <laughs> and then he takes a further eight days to decide upon a new name for himself. Don Quixote, and because he wishes to honour his birthplace, he adds De La Mancha, so he's Don Quixote De La Mancha. And then, of course, a knight wouldn't be complete without a damsel in whose name he can perform brave deeds. So he fixes upon a farmer's daughter that he's previously coveted, and he renames her also Dulcinea del Tabuso, and Dulcinea, I suppose, <laughs> Dulce Sweet. Yep, yeah, probably. <laughs> and she, of course, is none the wiser. And so impatient is he to be righting wrongs and caught up in the rapture of his destiny, Kiara, now Quixote, sets out on his quest without telling anyone and he rides all day without adventure. He's got plenty of time to think and he becomes preoccupied with the fact that he's not actually been knighted. 
And you have to remember that his his mind is so distorted that he sees everything and everyone through the lens of the books he's read. So when he arrives at an inn, he believes it to be a castle <laughs> and with drawbridge and moats and towers. He thinks the innkeeper is the steward of the castle fortress and two prostitutes who are at the inn, he believes that they must be the fair maidens he has to protect. And this is, you know, the first encounter where we see Kiriti with ordinary people and it confirms for us as readers he's not going to be able to naively roam around La Mancha, oblivious to his delirium and be taken seriously. This encounter at the end just confirms his ridiculousness. And <laughs> But we also learn for the first time his capacity for causing serious harm yes. and brutality to others. Yeah. Uh, and that's quite sort of grounding because, you know, there are a few laugh out loud moments mm. with him and then you just think, yeah, oh. there's quite a lot of violence. Yeah. And- so despite the violence and Cervantes' ridicule of Quixote, which certainly stirred feelings in me of the sort of the patheticness of him, and despite his lack of reason and rationality, there's still at this point for me remained this objective nobleness because theoretically, you know, his intentions were good. Yes. He meant yeah. well. He meant well. <laughs> which is always a terrible yeah. thing to say. Which is hard to line up against the violence. Yeah. You know. And there's a painfully comical scene in the inn where the two prostitutes are taking off his armour and they can't remove his helmet because he's tied it on with these green cords. Um, so he's essentially an old, well, I mean, 50 was old in those. That's right, in, in that era. And he's essentially this older man in his sort of vest and, you yeah. know, stocking feet and he's got this ridiculous helmet on his head and he refuses to let them take it off to untie the cord so there's an image of him being fed his supper his cod through the sort of hole in his visor (laughs) it's quite funny isn't it it's just it's sort of everything isn't it it's it's funny and sad (laughs) it's got a real blackadder absolutely feel to it so for me symbolically um Don Quixote's helmet represents this very sort of narrow and defined view of the world through a small opening. Yeah. And it's also the mask that he wears because without the mask, he's forced to see the whole world as it really is. But yeah. instead of which, he's, he sees this very fixed. It just reinforces It does the his narrowness of his, yeah. his worldview. Mm. So I'll, I won't go into the rest of what happens at the end, but he returns home battered and and while he's resting, his friends and his niece collude to burn his books. But when he sees the smoke, his niece compounds his delirium by telling him that they hadn't burnt them at all. An enchanter had come on a cloud with a dragon and taken the books to revenge Quixote, as if his hallucinations yeah. didn't need any more encouragement. Yeah. And so, despite his niece's protests, he commences his quest again, and this time with someone else in tow who you're going to talk about. Yeah, It's interesting, isn't it, how it's an interesting little window into how people don't know how to manage a person who has yes. is mad. Yes. And so they'll try one thing, which is speaking very sensibly to them yes. and saying you've been reading too much and you need to have a rest. Yes. And then they try and flip Get to the opposite yes. by indulging the fantasy mm. but steering the person mm. in the way they want because they have no idea how to manage. Well, it's like when we have to deal with somebody with dementia yeah. and I've sadly had a father with dementia and you don't know, are you supposed to engage in their yeah. discussions with them or are you supposed to constantly correct them? Yeah, 
It's, so it's it's we, a we really it, struggle. With we that. do. We yeah, struggle we, with madness, don't yeah, we? We yeah, struggle with yeah. with how to deal. You're yeah. absolutely right, Virginia. Mm. And I guess from this point on, the book is a series of encounters that. Kyoti and his sidekick has with people that they meet and the tales that the people tell them and the layers that those tales add mm. to his imagination and mm. his intent. I found it interesting that throughout the whole first part of this book, Cervantes comments and interjects and he suggests to us that this is a genuine account of a real historical figure, Don yeah. Quixote, who was a real historical figure from La Mancha. He tells us that he was visiting a fair in the Spanish city of Toledo when he discovers a boy selling Arabic parchments in the street and he hires a Moor to read him some of the stories. And he discovers in these parchments the story of and the history of Don Quixote written by a, I can't pronounce his name, I'm yeah, so embarrassed, yeah. Cide Hamet. Bengali, yeah, yeah. Bengali. Yeah. And from that point in the story, Cervantes claims that this is actually now the translation of Benengeli's work. So through his interjections and his own commentary, Cervantes is almost present in the novel as a character himself because he's always there. He sure is. And I read, I read something that, which I found fascinating. It was when I was having a look at the discussions about Shakespeare yeah, and Cervantes yeah. that you never, ever feel Shakespeare is in the work with you when you're reading Shakespeare's no. plays. He's never present in the book. So you are completely absorbed in this fictional, these fictional plays and these fictional characters yeah. and you never, ever feel Shakespeare there, whereas in this book you feel Cervantes yeah. oh. there with you all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. And I think, you know, this is part of the artifice that he's creating for the reader in the layer of the layers of delusion. Quixote is clearly deluded and maybe Cervantes thinks he's deluding us as well. Yeah. Um, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Well, I thought I would talk a little bit about Sancho Panza because he's he's a great character. Mm. So he's Don Quixote's sidekick. He's a neighbouring farmer and he's the opposite of Don Quixote. He's mm. all the opposites. Mm. He's an everyman. He's poor and simple. He's married. He's got a... I think one or two children, I'm not sure. He's short and fat. He doesn't look at all like Don Quixote. Sancho rides a very simple donkey, not a not a beautiful steed like <laughs> Don Quixote thinks he does. Um, Sancho's illiterate and he's very earthy and more realistic. And the key quirk that he has is that he often talks in proverbs. So his conversation is just littered yes. with, with proverbs and you would think in a book of this size that he would run out of proverbs. Yes, but he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> sometimes they make him seem wiser and yes. sometimes they yeah. make him seem more of a fool. Yeah. But that was the, mm. the impression mm. that I had when, when he sort of launched into his proverbs. So Sancho Panza is not part of the beginning of the story and he's not in that first sally that no. you talked about where he goes off to the inn uh, so that he can become knighted. Sancho appears for the first time in Chapter 8, I think it is, when Don Quixote has sort of pretended to have recovered from his first quest <laughs> and he asks his neighbour to be his squire and he sort of to lure him into doing it, he offers him a minor governorship if, <laughs> if he will come and travel with Don mm. Quixote. And Sancho agrees and that this is then when the real adventures begin and, and he's about to go off on what they call the second sally or the second quest. And it's an interesting thing, this 
I always think of Don Quixote as a quest, but it's really mm. more a series of episodes. It is. Yes, it is. And there's no real end point in no. mind as there is with a lot of the other quest novels yeah. that we've talked about yeah. on the podcast yeah. and other ones we've read. But it still seems like a quest because even if you start with one point in mind, all those side trips still happen, don't yes. they? And all those side yeah. adventures still happen. Well, well, it's almost like in his head it's a quest for this higher purpose. True. That's Whereas probably it's it. actually just tales of the misadventures of what the reality yes. is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's <laughs> so true. That's so true. So Sancho agrees and off they go and that's the chapter also where Don Quixote thinks they're riding out and he starts talking about some giants that he can see yeah. on the horizon and Sancho looks at Don Quixote and says, where are the giants? I can't, I can't see any giants. And, <laughs> and he says, oh, those things over there, they're waving their arms at me. And Sancho says, those are windmills. And Don Quixote is not persuaded. No. He says, no, no, yeah. they're, they're giants and they're waving at me. Yeah. And that's where the whole phrase tilting at windmills yes, comes just from. just brilliant. Which is probably the single most well-known yes. phrase that, that comes from Don Quixote. Yeah. And it's actually such a small part of the book. I know, I know. But I think it really does and it comes capture up, it your imagination. It happens straight away as well. Yes, you imagine right. it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he sort of ends up being quite badly injured because he sort of throws his lance into the the sail of yes. the windmill and gets moved along rather quickly and it sort of throws him off his horse mm. and it's, he becomes quite badly injured. So Sancho Panza is, to me, the OG sidekick. He's the guy that all the literary and movie sidekicks are modelling. Absolutely. And have been modelling for yeah. over 400 yeah. years. If you think Sherlock Holmes and Watson, Bertie Wooster mm. and Jeeves, Huckleberry Finn, mm. Robinson Crusoe, mm. you know, Batman and Robin, all, yeah. all of those. Absolutely. I mean, you can just start rattling mm. off all, all the movie Was ones. Was there even a sidekick before Sancho? Oh, Who knows? I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> And he's just got so many facets to him that we see in all of the books and mm. all the movies and television since then. He has so many uses in progressing the story, yeah. I think. Yeah. For a start, he tells us what's going on in Don Quixote's head mm. because as Don Quixote is talking to Sancho and telling Sancho what he's planning, what his thoughts are, we are learning them as well yes. at the same time. And Sancho also, I think, he fills out the main character mm. in that he, by comparing his way of moving through the world, we sort of form an impression by comparison with the way Don Quixote yeah, okay. behaves yeah. in the world and how they respond to all the mm. different adventures. You get much more of a sense of both of them, yes. really, yeah, yeah, that's by, true. By, by sort of balancing each other out. So Don Quixote says there are giants and... Sancho says, no, they're windmills. And probably with some of these stories, the truth is somewhere in the yeah. middle, <laughs> which I, I rather love. Mm. We sort of are also able to understand that Don Quixote has some problems with his mental health. <laughs> yeah, <I think. laughs> As we would say in 2022, <laughs> because Sancho is there beside him realising that Don Quixote is getting things wrong quite often. <laughs> he's seeing things that aren't there. He's believing that mm. a simple inn is a castle mm. and it's not, or mistaking a barber's basin for a helmet mm. or believing it's his duty to set free some galley mm. slaves or any of yeah. the other million of adventures mm. that they go on. 
And Sancho is so practical that he even decides when necessary to lie to Don Quixote and pretend that he's delivered a letter to Dulcinea when he's actually gone nowhere near her. And then he gets later caught up in that lie and he has to tell a bit more of a lie to sort of cover up the first lines and and so it goes. And there's almost an opportunism to that, isn't it? Because that is a feature of him, isn't it? Is that he's sort of also hedging his bets. A little completely bit, as, as good sidekicks do absolutely because, Man- and and manage and again managing a mad person yes <laughs> and managing how he's going to cope in that yeah. yeah yeah so he's often described as being quite loyal to Don Quixote yeah. which I didn't quite see him that way because he often had thoughts or he wrote in letters to his wife that he was going to hang on in the hope of getting that reward that Don Quixote yes. had promised him. Yeah. And I think at one point Don Quixote promises Sancho an island. Yes. Can't well, the remember rewards where. change, don't they? Because, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, not surprisingly. Pragmatism comes into yeah, play. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Well, He's <laughs> just constantly offering him things yeah. to stay with him. Yes. And Sancho does start getting carried away and looking forward to this island yes. that he's going to have, yes. how he's going to manage it, whether he's up to the management of an island and <laughs> all this sort of thing. The loyalty thing for me is is a bit questionable, but you know, and there's a the fact that he kind of knows that there's no island. There's not going to be an island. Yes. But he also kind of wants there to be an island yeah, too. I, I was undecided about that. I almost thought <laughs> yeah. that he was he bought into the craziness as long as it served him. <laughs> yes. So there was a there was still a part of him thought there might be something yeah, in it for absolutely. him. Absolutely. So he it was it's, hanging it's in there. It's worth a try. Yeah. And in that in this first part, he does go home with a big thing full of coins, he does. doesn't he? He does. Yeah. Uh, so he does go home. Yeah. To his so wife. it's kind of reels uh, him in a little bit, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, the other thing I found very interesting about. Uh, Sancho as compared to Don Quixote is who is the fool and who is yes. the wise man yes. and and that's often the case with the the sidekicks that we see in more modern and I mean particularly say Bertie Wooster and yes. Jeeves you know you've got more, the more educated perhaps Bertie Wooster who's been to the best schools in yeah. England and has all the money and then you've got Jeeves who doesn't really say very much but just goes about quietly solving all the dilemmas <laughs> and and sees things with much more clarity yes. and is much more wise in, in many ways. Yeah. And in this, you get moments where Don Quixote, because he does have moments of lucidity. He does, when he makes his soliloquies. Yes. Sometimes they're quite rational. Yes, and know. he's very uh, articulate yeah. because he is yeah. Yeah. literate and, and well-read. And then he has moments of just complete madness. And you can see why psychiatry has such an interest in, Absolutely. in this. Absolutely, yeah. And then Sancho has moments of being very down to earth and putting a Don Quixote on the straight and narrow and, and saying no to things and no to some of his more crazy ideas. But then he also just buys into the whole yeah. thing when it yeah. suits you, as you yes. say. Yes. Because well, he's not as learned, is he? So no. He, no. He, he can almost never be as intelligent, no. but he see, his, his perception is. Yeah, yeah. You know, so they do, more they do cross the yeah. It's not yeah. They're not black and white, either of them. Mm. And I found that mm. quite interesting, and particularly as the story progressed. Mm. So, yeah, he's a, he's a great character. Mm, I agree. I mentioned earlier Quixote's helmet as a symbol of his inability to accept anything other than his worldview. And much later in the novel, he and Sancho are on the road and Don Quixote is reflecting on their recent misfortune. And I'm just going to read a little bit of that. A short while later, Don Quixote caught sight of a man riding towards them and wearing on his head something that glistened 
as if it were made of gold. And no sooner had he seen him than he turned to Sancho and said, It seems to me, Sancho, there is no proverb that is not true, because all of them are judgments based on experience, the mother of all knowledge, in particular the one that says, one door closes and another opens. (laughs) Unbelievable. There's another phrase. And so, of course, he's referring to the fact that the previous evening they were down on their luck. And now he sees somebody coming towards him who appears to have something golden on his head. And he says, I say this because, unless I am mistaken, coming towards us is a man who wears on his head the helmet of Mambrino, concerning which, as you well know, I have made a vow. And and Mambrino was a, a Moorish, a fictional Moorish king who was often celebrated in the the romances of chivalry, the implication there being that Don Quixote had read some of those romances. And Mambrino's helmet was made of pure gold and rendered its wearer invulnerable, Uh Uh, a high prize, of course, that Don Quixote sets his sights on because he he wants that helmet. And, And Sancho says, no, no, you're mistaken, and points out that what he, Sancho, can see is simply a man riding a donkey <laughs> and wearing something shiny on his head. And, and Don Quixote insists, no, no, it's the helmet of Mambrino and tells Sancho to step aside. And Cervantes at this point interjects with the truth of the situation and tells the reader that the barber was in fact travelling between two villages where he had an appointment, amongst other things, to trim the beard of one of the villagers. That's right, yeah. And it began to rain, and so he put the basin on his head (laughs) to prevent his hat getting marked. And as Quixote approaches the barber, uh, he, of course, has formed this fixed narrative in his head, as he always does, and he draws his lance and he rides towards the man on the horse, determined to run him through. The barber jumps off his horse in order to avoid Quixote and he runs away, and Quixote puts the basin on his head. <laughs> and then many chapters later, Don Quixote and Sancho are venturing into the mountain range, this Sierra Morena, on the trail of the madman Cadenio. Yes. And I won't go into the details of that particular story, but not for the first time, Sancho's had enough of the quest and, <laughs> and he, he doesn't see the point anymore and he wishes to leave. And they have their typical back and forth, which ends up with Don Quixote telling Sancho to be silent, which often happens when Sancho is beginning to talk sense. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. the, there's, it's almost like if he allows Sancho to keep talking. It, he might actually He might actually him. be persuaded of it, yeah. So I'll come to that in a minute. Mm. I, so that's quite an interesting sort of turn that starts in the book. Anyway, Sancho says to Don Quixote, in God's name, Sir Knight of the Sad Countenance, which of course is the new nickname he's started to give him since he had his teeth removed. Mm-hmm. He starts calling Quixote Sir Knight of the Sad Countenance, which I just love. I cannot endure or bear with patience some of the things your worship says. They make me think that all you tell me about chivalry and winning kingdoms and empires and giving isles and doing other favours and mighty deeds as knight errants do must be just wind and lies and all friction and fiction or whatever you call it. For to hear your worship say that a barber's basin is Mambrino's helmet and persist in that error for more than four days, what can one think? Only that a man who persists in saying things like that must be cracked in the brain. I have the basin in the bag, all dented, and I'm taking it home to mend it and use for shaving. I just love this. <laughs> yeah. And Don Quixote answers, and this to me was a bit of a turning point in the, this part of the book. 
Look you, Sancho, by the same oaths as you swore just now, I swear that you have less brains than any squire has or ever had in the world. Is it possible that all this while you've been with me and not discovered that everything to do with knights errant appears to be chimera, folly and nonsense? Ah. This is not really the case, but there is a crew of enchanters always amongst us who change and alter all our deeds and transform them according to their pleasure, either favour us or to injure us. So what seems to you to be a barber's basin uh -huh. seems to be, to me, Mambrino's helmet or to another as something else. Yeah. And it just seemed to me that it was almost a concession yeah. by Quixote yeah. at that point, almost of the elasticity of perception. Yes. And that what he believes to be may not be what everyone else believes. And and that kind of runs counter to the the definitive, inflexible, yeah. narrow worldview that yeah. he ascribes to. Yeah. So I just, I don't just. It's, I, it's, it's probably one of the moments of lucidity, yeah, really, where, yeah. where he's actually able to have the self awareness yeah. that he has a different perception yes. from other people. From other people. And, and, and neither is right or wrong. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. It's very interesting. And the other thing I, I wanted to ask your views about, because I'm quite fascinated about this idea of Don Quixote the fool versus Don Quixote the, the hero. And we, we have touched on it a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Because as I said earlier, I, like I did, there were moments where I really laughed out loud quite a few times, and there was a real kind of slapstick blackadder vibe to me. Yeah. To be honest, I've read this translation, which is the Edith Grossman translation, which was done in 2003, and it's a much lauded translation. It I is. don't know who's it, translated and it's yours. different because mine, they call him the knight of the sad face. Yes, and, yeah, Not how interesting. Sad countenance. countenance. Yeah, but I had also listened on Audible right. to the 1755 allegedly translation by Tobias Smollett. Now, That's the first one, I think, wasn't well, it? Or one of the first? Yeah, one of the first. It actually Maybe was not the first, controversial but. for a while and it was considered a hoax and a fraud because it was suggested that it wasn't a translation at all. It was simply a revision of Jervis's translation in much earlier on. Yeah. So I think Jervis did the first translation okay. and Smollett did a, a revision. One of them did a translation... But he didn't actually read the original book. Well, he I suspect that's this, I reckon that that's might be Smollett, Smollett and, yeah. and translated it from something else. Yeah. Well, that's the one that I listened to on Audible, and lovely guy who's reading the book, but his Sancho Panza is definitely Baldrick from Barcada. Okay. And the voice that he uses, right. the way he addresses uh -huh. Don Quixote, makes me listening. I'm oh. listening to a BBC. Series. I mean, I it, it it really did kind of affect me because it it had that very slapstick yes. kind of, and then I of course I read that in the early these earlier translations there was definitely a view that Quixote was a fool, and it was only until the 18th and the 19th century when there were English translations more learned English translations, I should say, that English readers were more sympathetic to Quixote and they viewed him more of as a hero. So it, it wasn't so much ridicule as sympathy. I wonder like they whether were that's because of the way they him. were translated yeah. or whether it's just about the culture of the audience. Yeah. So my audible version was very much more... He's a fool. He's an, a fool, whereas the gross, this Grossman written version was a bit more reverential. Interesting. A bit more um, 
religious. There was a okay. high, a uh, higher, higher, yeah. Yeah, so who, is, who's done yours? This, so mine is a guy called John Rutherford. I think it's also quite a well-regarded yes, one. Yes, yes. Uh, this is the Penguin classic yeah, that beautiful, they chose. And beautiful it is version. beautiful. And I think it is a beautiful translation, yes. I must say. It reads very well. But just that little difference between yes. the night of the sad yes. countenance and the night of the sad face. And it doesn't really make much difference, but countenance is a much more weighty word. Yes. Yes. It gives it a bit more formality. Well, hers is, and, and there's been a lot of things written about her translation that it, she almost takes it to this higher yeah. level. Which maybe is more fitting for the time yes. and also the nature of the yeah. story being about yes. knights and yeah. chivalry. It's almost and... more respectful of Quixote oh. than, the, than the original Smolich that I found instantly derisive almost of him it's so and, and, interesting. and the first chapter is language is quite different it's, yeah, yeah yeah it's quite interesting i've told you that story and i think i've told it on the podcast of reading a cheap online version of war and peace and then a, a really well translated yeah. edition and thinking <laughs> I, I read a little bit of the big thick book and it was too heavy in bed at night yes. so i swapped to my ipad I read this cheap version and I just couldn't believe it was the same book. So yeah, I had to just, see, that's extraordinary. I read about three, cha- two chapters and just thought, and got them side by side and thought, okay, I just can't continue with this. It's so bad. So we'll be back to that issue of the quality of a it translation. Is. It, ma- it makes it's all just, the difference. And it, you know, it means that between us, we've probably got four different stories. Yeah, yeah. It's just quite yeah. interesting. One of the interesting things about this book, and one, probably one of the reasons why it's so massive, is that he he has these sort of interpolated stories, these side stories that go off on a complete tangent that have absolutely nothing to do with Don Quixote and Sancho's journey on this second sally that they're on, where they just come across some people and they tell them their life story and he just inserts that into the text. And some of them are fascinating. There's a fabulous one about the uh, Lothario, about the man who decides to test his wife's fidelity to him. Oh, yes, yes. And it's where we get the word Lothario oh, from. So and he gets his friend to sort of make up to his wife in his absence and test whether she oh. remains loyal to him. And it's just such a folly. And, oh, uh, it's such uh, a tragic know, what, what story. What could possibly go wrong there? Uh, and it goes on for several chapters, but and it is absolutely fascinating. Mm. The one I thought I would talk about is The Captive's Tale. Yeah. And the reason I thought I would just talk about it briefly is because it's said to be very autobiographical. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't and I, know that. I just find that quite interesting. So it's about three plus chapters, a sort mm. of three dedicated chapters to the tale, and then there's a bit of a closure to the story in the fourth chapter. So it's quite a, a large chunk. And it's a side story where Don Quixote, Sancho and various members of the group that they're in meet up with a man who has a beautiful young Moorish woman with him named Zoraida mm-hmm. and he has been a captive in Algiers and he sits down to tell the group his story and he tells them that he was one of three sons of a man in Spain and, and his father was a spendthrift and he had decided to he could see that he was going to witter away his three sons' inheritance if things continued. So he decided, that father decided, I'm going to divide up my estate into four parts. I'll keep one part for myself and I'll give one part to each of my sons and I'll tell them to go mm. out into the world and make their way and make their fortune. 
And he sort of says, I'd, I'd really like one of you to go into the church, one into the sea and one into the palace of the king, which is a, a proverb. Yeah. And there's so many proverbs in this. Interestingly, the proverbs do seem to translate, which yeah. is also fascinating because mm. you would think that they would be very culturally Esoteric specific. To the, yeah, yeah. yeah. So one son decides to buy merchandise and he sails off to America mm. to sell that and make his fortune. And one son says he's going to go off and study at the university and possibly go into the church. And this man who's the captive decides to go and make his fortune by enlisting in the Navy. And this is such an interesting time to go mm. into the Navy because there are a lot of naval battles and things going on. Mm. And the, I think this is where it becomes very autobiographical of Cervantes' life. So he heads off to Genoa. And then there are a series of adventures as he ends up captured in the Battle yeah. of Lepanto and he's taken to be a galley slave in Constantinople mm. and then he's later taken to Algiers. And I think there's Cervantes' way of putting his own story into the mm. story of Don Quixote and he even inserts a sentence into this tale where he says uh, he's talking about a Spanish soldier named Saavedra which is actually part of Cervantes' surname. Yes. And he says, If we weren't short of time, I'd tell you of this soldier's exploits and they would entertain and amaze you much more than my own story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I loved that because I thought there's Cervantes, he's being meta. Yes. Yeah. So the first modern novel yeah. has got everything and it's also got an author being meta mm. about their own story inside their story. So there's this whole tale then that follows after he's been captured and taken to Algiers where he's placed in a prison for Christians. Mm. There's this specific type of Christian prison that they're placed into where it's believed that they have families who mm. have sufficient money who'll pay a ransom mm. for them. And this did all happen to Miguel mm. de Cervantes. The next bit I'm not sure mm. did or didn't, mm. but apparently, in the story, the captive says that overlooking the prison courtyard was Zoraida's father's mansion and this sort of hand kept appearing and waving mm. waving to them while they were out sort of having their rest time in the, in the prison courtyard. She's sort of a captive up there in the window of her father's house and she's, she drops money down out of mm. the window to the captive and, and then mm. eventually a note in Arabic and he has to get it translated and she explains that she wants to escape mm. her father's house, that she had a Christian maid who taught her lots of things about Christianity and that she wants to go to Spain and be a Christian. Yes. And what follows then are all sorts of fabulous exploits on the high seas and lots of battles and adventures and daring do. Mm. <laughs> and... I absolutely loved it because the fact that it's autobiographical is particularly interesting, but it also gives a lot of context about the world at the time and in particular mm. Imperial Spain where the various borders of Europe were changing yeah. all the time yep. and that Battle of Lepanto that the captive was in and that de Cervantes was in was the largest naval battle in history and it, it, that was fought between a coalition of the Catholic states, which was mainly Spain mm, and Italy, Italy yeah. against the Ottoman Empire. Mm. And that was really the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. That was sort of the first time that the Turks lost. And it's sort of a pinnacle point at which history just started to completely turn around. And I just love that when a novel captures history in that, that way, but it makes it very 
real. Yes. It doesn't just feel like some event that happened over there, you know, a long time ago. You know, it's it's a character that was actually there on the high seas. I don't even know how a naval battle is fought. I mean, do they stand up on their boats and I know they rammed each other, yeah. but I don't know what. Would they have cannons in those days? Because I'm not into I battles. I don't know. But it the sort of almost makes was me. It ca- is it too early for cannons? I don't I've know. got no idea. I, 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 I did look up the Battle of Lepanto, but yes. I actually didn't look up how they. Yeah, what the weapons were. They tried to obviously would try and drown all the. I think there were 800 boats, and and, and this is what just Cervantes had been through. It's yeah, fascinating. It's, yeah, extraordinary. So I love that tale. Mm. Um, I love that little insertion, and I love the little sort of author comment in it, and having a little play around mm. by putting mm. his name in there. I thought just just made it delightful for me. So and is he meant one. to have written this when he was? He says that he was in prison. Yes, that he was in prison and he wrote it very quickly. Prison. It just seems extraordinary yeah, that it's I written know. so quickly. And he was imprisoned at one point because there were irregularities in his tax yes, collection. Ta- yeah, which is. <laughs> just bizarre because he's a tax collector. I know. And yet he'd been a slave. So yeah, it just <laughs> he sort of lived every sort of life yeah, yeah. imaginable. Which means it's believable that he might have come across tales from Moors and because he, you know. He, well, he, he was in Algiers for eight years or something yeah, like that. So, so he, he may very well have come across mm, tales mm. And, and that this is a collection of a lot of his experiences. Yeah, you can imagine someone like that would want to. Yeah. My goodness, there's a huge storm outside. There is a huge storm. Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah, so that was a great one. Yeah, fascinating. The only thing I was going to mention before we finish today was I'm going to lay down a challenge because as I have read this, and I'm sure I've missed plenty because I got immersed in the stories and the tales, I've been sort of collecting phrases that we currently use. Oh, I love that. And maybe we don't use all of them, but they're they're phrases that have lasted way beyond the Cervantes. So. He mentions frying pan into the fire, that's uh, one. Or tilting at wind, windmills you've already mentioned, yeah. which is absolutely survived. Uh, when one door shuts, another one opens. Well, I mean, that that's still definitely Whenever anyone known. gets broken up with, you say that, or yes. they lose their job. Yes, exactly. People always say Something's that. around the corner. Yeah. Or, yeah. And then thou hast seen nothing yet, which I just oh. thought was, ex- I was surprised when I saw that. <sighs> and then there is somewhere, and I can't find it, and I, when I first started reading it, I, I saw this. There's something to do with glistening and gold. It's not the same as the the phrase that Shakespeare uses, and it's not the phrase that later appears in Wharton and other. Right. But there is a phrase to do with glistening of gold. Glistening of gold. It's not the barber's basin. It's at some other occasion. So. I would love people on Insta or yeah. somehow to message us maybe on Instagram for other phrases that they have found in Quixote that have survived the the period of time. I came across a few and I, because this is my beautiful cloth-bound classic, I was reluctant to highlight it. (laughs) And reluctant to cover it in sticky notes. Well, it it is, as you can see. It's a beautiful edition. I wouldn't be messing with that one. I have taken half of them out. So it has got lots of sticky notes, but I would have liked to have actually highlighted all of the little sentences. Uh, I probably should have bought a cheaper version, but I wanted to read a really good translation, yes. so I probably shouldn't Excellent. have worried. But his language is just fabulous. It is. His grasp of language is fabulous. So that's it for part one of Don Quixote. One. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll join us for a discussion about part two yes, soon. soon. Adios. Adios. Bye-bye. 
We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. As long as I'm coming through. Do you know what it is? Your microphone's not on.